the book of Jude, if you'll go there uh, this morning. I'm going to look at verse 11, one verse, and this is going to be uh, a little bit of a challenge this morning because uh, sometime back I preached a series of messages at the church I pastor out of this one verse. And I had three sermons in that series, uh, probably close to three hours worth of preaching. And uh, this morning my goal is to condense that. I know I could come back and revisit it, but I don't feel to do that. And so I have 18 pages of notes up here. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to use all those notes, and I, and I mean that. And uh, the reason I print those notes off sometimes when I'm going to condense something, I'm marking out. So if I was to give this to you and tell you to teach or preach, you'd be a confused soul. Uh, and I might get confused along the way. So pray for my memory and do our best that we don't chase too many rabbits along the way. But I feel to share this with you. And again, if you'll go to the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation, verse 11. Verse 11. One verse. And if you would stand and let's look at that one verse. Jude, verse 11. Now, if you're looking for chapter 11, you're going to be confused. <laughs> it's one chapter. Verse 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the era of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor, or we could say Korah. Let's look at it one more time. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the era of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we have come to you for your help already in this meeting. God, we ask you to help us once again. Minister in this time, God, we would that you'd come by, that you would minister and touch. We ask you, Holy Ghost, God, to help us this morning. God, we need your direction, Lord Father, in the hour in which we live. We know that the Bible is sufficient to give us direction and help and encouragement in direction and guidance in these last days. We love you, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. Help us this morning. Minister, if you would. We ask you, Lord, that you'd give us the strength in the name of Jesus. Make this clear to us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we love you and we thank you. We love you and we thank you. And everybody said, Amen. Last year, one of the last messages that I preached here at the last camp meeting, I preached on how to survive the age of apostasy. And in that message, I came to the book of Jude and I kind of surveyed the book, made some points there. And I would encourage you at some point in time, not because I preached it, but if you ever get a chance to go back and listen or do your own study on the book of Jude, you'll find that I believe it's placed here chronologically on purpose. There's an urgency in the voice of Jude letting us know that we are living in the end times and also that there are apostates or false ministers and false movements among us. I dealt with that last year and how to survive that age. But what I want to talk to you about here tonight, we are going to look at these three different historical figures and understand that there are illustrations or characteristics of these apostates. Things that we look at about them, highlights about them. And I believe what we will find this morning with the help of the Holy Ghost, we will see the stark contrast between those who have, as we talked about yesterday, and those that have not. We will find that Jude here is dealing with these apostates, these people that have come, in, come into the church. And my goal this morning, 
warning is to number one, highlight these apostates. Number two, help us to discern. And number three, to examine our own lives to see if there would be any form of apostasy in our own lives. The first one that we look at here this morning, and we'll take a little time with each one of these historical figures, we are going to look at what Jude says is called the way of Cain. Now we notice here, interesting about the book of Jude and some things and some points that we can make, make about him. What he does, he gives us these correlations to past apostates. Jude understood the crucial importance of us learning from history. And how many knows it's important that we learn from history? Matter of fact, you would find Jude in verses 5 through 7 as he brings us into remembrance how some people left out of the land of Egypt and afterwards were destroyed because they believed not. He talked about the angels which kept not their first estate. He talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and how the cities were born, burned up because they went after strange flesh. But then he comes to this point and he says, Woe unto them! And that basically is a loud cry of saying how horrible it is for those who go after, number one, the way of Cain. What he is saying is that the three historical figures that he mentions here are our prototypical models of ones who depart from God's truth. Jude is saying that these apostates have entered into the church and these people that have entered into the church have these similarities. They are proud. They are self-willed and they are full of malice and they do not love the truth of God. They do not love the truth of God. Again, Brother Derek, why is this important? Because we are living in a time where there is mass confusion in the church world. Amen. We are living in a time once again that Christianity has been so popular. Everybody's a Christian, right? Amen. The old Now the saying is this, you got to get people unsaved to get them saved. Somebody say amen. I wouldn't I was actually down in Elizabeth City and I was down at the waterfront when I still lived in the Edenton area and, and there was a drunk man down there one day and I remember he was stumbling around and me and my wife were walking down there in the waterfront and, I, and he came up to me and asked for, asked for some money and I, and I told the gentleman, I said, sir, I don't know you, I don't have any money and I said, I have a debit card. I said, that ain't going to do you any good. I said, but what you need is to give your life to Jesus and I said, the Lord's coming back and he said, in the twinkling of an eye, in the the twinkling of an eye. He even finished the statement. Why is that? Because he knows that he's been in church and no doubt have some forms of influence. But we've even seen in these last days the spirit of apostasy. Things in this world and in our, in our, in our Christianity in the church world has just been dumbed down to sound bites and sermon nets and just clickbait and all these different things. We need to understand there is a true and there is a false. So as we look at this here tonight. Let's examine the first historical figure. Now as many of you know, this will be found all the way back in Genesis chapter 4 as we are talking about the way of Cain. We know that Cain is a brother. As we look there in Genesis 4 verses 1 through 2, we know the story. And Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And we know that Abel was a keeper 
keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. We know that Cain was a worker. It tells us his occupation. But we also see Cain in the Bible as a worshiper. You remember the story. I'm just going to rehearse this to you here this morning and make some points to you, some characteristics of things we need to look out for. We know that it says in the process of time about the story of Cain and Abel going to worship the Lord. And the Bible says, And the Lord had respect unto the Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. It's that simple. Abel and Cain both went to worship. Some believed it was at the very Garden of Eden, at the entrance of it. There's a lot of theories about that. But we do know this. is this simple? To one of those, God accepted. And to the others, God did not even respect that. Now let me ask you a question here this morning because this is important. When God looks at Cain, and, and, and there's different ideas again about how God approved Abel's over Cain. Many believe that maybe fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice of Abel. And Cain is sitting over there and he's been not accepted. But notice this, when he realized that he was not accepted, notice that he got mad. The Bible says, very wroth and his countenance fell. And let me ask you a question this morning. What is your response when God tells you you are wrong? How do you respond when God says, no, you are wrong? What is your response to that? Notice what Cain did. He got angry. There's two things you can do when God comes to you and says, yes, I accept you or I do not accept you. If He tells you that you're wrong or if He tells you or points out and highlights something in your life, there's two things you can do. You can submit to God and get it right or you can get angry and be plunged further into deception. How do you respond when God tells you that you are wrong? Your response is is going to prove the condition of your heart. Has God ever told you no before? He will. I've had times God said go. I've had other times God said no. I've had times God said repent. I've had times God said be quiet. Come on. What's your response? What's the condition of your heart? Because this has proved something about Cain here. I don't believe some people get caught up over, you know, what was the difference between their sacrifices? And, you know, maybe that, maybe God, you know, was just mad because Cain had some cabbages over there or something like that. And maybe that was the case. But I, what I believe is simply this it was the condition of Cain's heart. I don't know. You know, we can speculate. And this is merely speculation. He looks over there at the, at the altar of Abel. And he sees the blood and the effort and, and the toil. And maybe he's got all of his vegetables and different things and placed up there nicely. Looks very uniform and nice. And he thinks to himself, mine certainly looks better or whatever was the case. But we know once again it was the condition of his heart. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this. God was not unfair to Cain. How do we know that? Because in verse 7 of chapter 4 in Genesis, he simply says this, If you do well, you will be accepted. It's that simple. He's not an unfair God. If you do good, God's going to accept you. 
But he says, if you do not do well, sin lieth at the door, almost crouching at the door. And he said unto thee, and you shall be unto his desire, and it shall rule over him. Notice what he's saying here is basically this. You have a choice. I do not accept your sacrifice there. The condition of your heart. And there's instruction for you if you want it. If you do well, you'll be accepted. Brothers and sisters, we are living in a time that people do not want to know the mind of God. They do not want to put forth the effort. They get angry. They get frustrated. And instead of submitting to God, they run away from God. So this brings us to our next thought, which you're all familiar with. Cain's a murderer. And Cain talked with his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, now interesting here because earlier we know that God would come to Adam in the garden. Here's another question. Earlier we said, Adam, where art thou? Now he's saying, Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. I am, I am I my brother's keeper. And then God would say, and he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. So notice this, Cain, this is premeditated murder. I believe he lured his brother out into that location. He knew exactly where his brother was. He knew exactly where the body was. He knew where he he had buried it. And here God is asking him, what have you done? He said, the blood of your brother speaking from the ground. And notice that Abel here is a liar. He's a murderer, just like his father, the devil. We see that because in the New Testament, in 1 John, it says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one. What do we know about the wicked one? He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Cain shows the characteristics of his true father, if you would. But notice here what Cain does. You know that he's going to be cursed. He's going to be made a wanderer. And notice what Cain says. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Now I want you to notice this because Cain didn't feel bad about his sin. But he only felt bad about his punishment. There's a fine difference in true repentance. Come on. Some people get mad at the consequences. But I like what David said in Psalms 51. Lord, I've sinned, God, against you and you only. God, give us some more men like Joseph's in the Bible. Remember the story, Potiphar's wife, right? And I like what it says in the King James Version, and he got him out. Very simple. He got out. He got him out. He left. Why is that? He looked at her and says, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? Amen. Every sin originally is against God. And Cain's heart is this way. He's more worried about the consequences and the punishment. His attitude is this. We do not need to be like him. Why? Because he sits there. He does not care what God wants. He wants to worship God in his own way. It's unacceptable instead of submitting to God he gets mad at God and there's something he has to do when somebody is worshiping God correctly and you're not there's once again we come back to a crossroads you either can look at that one that's worshiping God correctly and look to God and say God help me learn or you can try to silence the voice of righteousness 
Do we tell you why a lot of people talk about holiness churches? True holiness churches is because it frustrates them. It makes them mad because they can see the contrast between that which is acceptable and that which is unacceptable. Thank God again for acceptable worship. We are not to be like Cain. Brothers and sisters, again, we must understand this. As we look in the Bible and we come to this conclusion, we must not go the way of Cain. This is one of the earmarks of apostasy. When you look to the world and they have self-styled worship and they do not care what God says, this is a mark of the last days in which we live. It's where we are. Why? Because people do not want to know what God desires. We look at this other gentleman by the name of Balaam. Man, we could spend so much time right here. A lot of discussion around this gentleman by the name of Balaam. Was he a true preacher that got hired out or was he a, was he a soothsayer? I'll tell you what the Bible calls him. A soothsayer. In the book of Joshua. We look at this man by the name of Balaam. And, and let me just re, rehearse this in your mind because it's important that you get this point. Jude would say this. It says they ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. Basically what Jude is doing here, he's unmasking the fundamental motive behind these people that are false ministers are sellouts. They go after the money. They, look, they go to where the money is. They'll tell you what you want to hear as long as you give them a certain amount of money. Brothers and sisters, we are living in an age where ministers sell out all the time. Amen. I've had opportunities. I, I've been, I, I've been, there's been people that have called me before and said, Brother, Derek, have you thought about joining this certain fellowship or this certain movement? Man, they got some big churches and not enough preachers. I didn't have to think about it very long because God forbid that I would ever violate my conscience and the Word of God for brick and mortar and nice looking pews. We look at Balaam in the Bible. Who is this man? We know that it is found in the book of Numbers chapter 22. And I'm just, once again, I'm going to take you down memory lane here for time's sake. We're not going to read all these verses. But for if you're taking notes, this is Numbers 22 through 24. We know that there is this Moabite king by the name of Balak. And Balak has a concern because the children of Israel were on their way to Canaan and has moved in now into Balak's territory. So Balak sent to Balaam, who lived in Mesopotamia along the Euphrates River, according to Numbers 22 and verse 5, and asked him if he would come and curse Israel for the exchange of a reward. We know the story there. Balaam would tell the people that came from Balak. He says, look, let me go talk to God. Now let me share something with you here. I again believe that Balak is a sellout soothsayer. I don't believe he is originally a man of God. As a matter of fact, if you read in history, they have actually found inscriptions of prophecies of Balaam. I believe he's just somebody who reaches out and when you study it, he reaches out to deities and sometimes he manipulates people. But notice what the Bible says when you read through this. God is the one that's going to come to him and talk. God is the one that's 
Jesus coming to him in number one originally and says, do not go with them. Do not go with them. So Balak's servants, they go back to where they're from in Moab. But then this time, Balak is going to send more higher ranked officials to him. It's going to come. They were more distinguished from the first. You'll find this in verse 16. And they promised a handsome reward. But this time, God would speak to Balaam and said, go with them, but do only what I tell you. You remember the story as it's very interesting as he would saddle up his donkey and on the way to Moab there's an angel in the way that's going to oppose Balaam there and all of a sudden that donkey begins to buck and kick and finally hurts Balaam. This happens three different times and we know the story is Balaam would get off that donkey and he would begin to beat the donkey and the Bible said in verse 28 then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. I remember that story. Brother Derek, is there a way to theologically explain all that away? No, the donkey talked. I read one commentator and he said he just sounded like he was talking. I said, no, the donkey talked. How do you know? Because God can make donkeys talk if He wants to. When we look at this, we can basically sum it up like this. Balaam is dumber than a beast. Because the Bible says that God opened the donkey's mouth and says, why are you beating me? But then the Bible says that God opened up Balaam's eyes and allowed him to see the angel standing in the way. I want you to think with me here. God says go, then puts an angel in the path to stop him. How do you make sense of all of that? I'll tell you what I've come to in my mind. You've got to look to what the angel says. The angel finally speaks to him and says, Look, if that donkey ain't saved your life, I'd have killed you. But you go there and you say only what God puts in your mouth. Balaam, don't you think you can go there and just say what you want and get the reward? No, no, no. You're dealing with a real God here. You're dealing with the living and a holy God. And you're going to go there and you're going to speak only what I give you. Maybe you come to a different conclusion, but that makes sense in my mind. We know the story as Balaam eventually gets there. And, and, and Balak, the king of Moab, takes him there to the top of these mountains. And he's going to give several different oracles again. Remember, Balak is promising Balaam. Balaam, a handsome reward. If you would come and curse Israel because Balaam was known for this. When you study some of secular history and traditions, he was known for his ability to curse different nations. But he takes them on top of this mountain and there comes this first oracle. We see what happens. Balaam first offered 14 sacrifices on seven altars and God speaks to him and this is what he says to Balak. I'm going to sum it up. How can I curse? But God is not cursed. How can I denounce or reject what God has not denounced? You think that's what Balak wanted to hear? No. Secondly, Balak, let's do it again. He takes him on top of another mountain there in Numbers 23 and 14 in Pisgah. Balaam sacrificed 14 animals again. When Balaam faced Israel again, here it comes. I have received a command to bless. He has blessed. And I cannot change it. I love that. I don't believe in the sovereignty of Satan. Do you? 
People sometimes are so worried about the big bad devil. I realize sometimes as a young believer you got to develop your theology. But we don't believe what's called dualism. We don't believe that Satan is just as big as God. No, if God blesses, God will bless. And there ain't nothing nobody can do about it. That will bring you encouragement in these last days as you're living for God. The church we pastor, the ministries we're working in, if I stay true to the word of God, there's nothing the enemy can do. No weapon formed against me will prosper. Why? Because what God blesses, nobody can touch. Not even a false prophet by the name of Balaam. I recently had an experience. I, I, I was working with somebody at the church. I shared a little bit with Brother Woods over the phone. A young man steeped in Satanism. And I'm not talking about somebody just making it up. I mean, this guy had some thoughts and theories. And I'd sit there and talk to him going down the road. And I'm th- he's, he's so bogus. And he's grabbing his head over there. And I'm saying, Lord, here I am going down the highway 75 miles an hour. I don't know if this guy's demon possessed. Is he going to try to grab my steering wheel? i got a, gu- a gun in the glove compartment. But I don't want to shoot him, Lord. I want him delivered. I'm just working through my mind. And he starts talking about the kundalini cult and the experience he had as he felt like a serpent was wrapped around his spine. He was talking about the Luciferian Apocrypha. Things I've only read about in books. As he would listen to demonic noises at night through, the, through different CDs he would buy and through the internet. And he would try to communicate with spirits. He had written down and denounced the Trinity on paper. He has lit candles and cut his wrists. And I'm going down the road and for days I'm dealing with this guy. And I'm telling my wife, she remembers who he is. She said, he's always giving me the creeps. So sweetie, some encouragement here. She said, he gave me the creeps the last time he come around. I'm laying there one night and I'm thinking about all these things. He's texting me strange things. I need help, Derek. Help me. It's strong. It's powerful. I'm laying there and saying, God, look, I don't even know what to do right now. I said, but God, I know you're greater than whatever he's going through. Got a text the next morning. He sends me a Bible verse. He said, this showed up on my phone last night through a Bible app I downloaded years ago. He said, I believe I've given my heart to Jesus. What are you saying, Brother Derek? If we're not careful, we can cower in fear and act like the cult or occultism or or all these things out there. It's greater than what we have. But I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, the Christ is going to build His church. The church of Jesus Christ is powerful. The body of Christ, just like Israel in the Old Testament, the enemy cannot touch what God has blessed. Nothing can change that but you. I'll share that with you in a moment. The third oracle was this. They went on another mountain. And we know Balak's getting frustrated. He's going to try one more time. Spirit of the Lord again moves on him and says, How beautiful are their tents. Man, there's some nice looking tents down there, Balak. Your dwelling places, oh Israel, they're beautiful. And Balak's mad by now. He says, look, if you're going to come here and do this, you ain't getting no money. I promised you a reward. Just quit opening your mouth. And before Balaam returns, he even throws out a few more things at him. A star will come out of Jacob. A sceptre will arise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. And there's some different wording there. It's interesting. Basically saying this God is going to smite the corners of Moab. Balak, you sent me here to curse them. I'm going to bless them. And you're cursed. It's poetic justice, is it not? 
But I want to show you something here in the Bible. Because I took time to study through this very interestingly. This was something that was referenced back to several times in Israel's history. Balaam had seven prophecies and seven blessings. And you would find this in Numbers 31, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Joshua 13, Joshua 24. And even in the book of Nehemiah, they point back and said, ha ha, it's almost as a, as, a, as a form of holy sarcasm if there's such a thing. You remember back when Balaam was sitting to curse you and I blessed you and said, that's the kind of God that I am. But I want you to notice something. Because... Balaam figured out how to curse Israel. Because he realized I cannot curse them directly. So he came up with a plan for Israel. How they can curse themselves. You would find Balak, the king of Moab, actually got some advice from Balaam of how to lure Israel into false worship and into fornication at Baal Peor. You would find, this is found there in Numbers, chapter 31 and verse 16. Behold, these called the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among them in the congregation of the Lord where 24,000 men died. So what Balaam realized with this, look, I know that we cannot curse them, but if they put down their defense, if they begin to, be, to give themselves to idolatry and to immorality, they will destroy themselves. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, that the church of Jesus Christ is untouchable. The enemy can't touch us. But if we give ourselves to idolatry and immorality, God's hand of blessing will become a hand of judgment. And what we have noticed in these last days, this brings us back to Jude. I'm going somewhere with this. This brings us back to this point right now that we must understand the church in America has given itself to idolatry and immorality. The story of Balaam is mentioned a few more times, or actually three times in the New Testament. Listen to what it says in 2 Peter 2 and 15. This is written to the church, which hath forsaken the right way and gone astray for following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You hear that? If you follow the way of Balaam, you love the wages of unrighteousness. The second chapter of Peter. And 2 Peter there focuses on the danger of false teachers secretly entering the church and leading people astray. Peter promises that God would judge these deceivers, but he also warns the believers to exercise discernment. These false teachers are like Balaam. If they knew the right way to turn you around, they'll tell you anything. They're sellouts just for a reward. My church would have to knock out the walls if everybody that came have stayed. <laughs> I have sat down with my office, in my office, and people sit in front of me, and they'd ask me for some advice. And I knew this. When I tell them the truth, they're either going to repent or they're going to run. And sadly, more of them have run than they have repented. 
How do you know? Because the church hadn't knocked out the walls. I've sat there. And, and I could tell you story after story, but I'm not just trying to just share these experiences. I'm just getting to the point of this. People come for advice. And I have a choice as a minister. I can tell them what they want to hear. I can compromise conviction, my convictions. I can compromise what this church has taught and stood for for years. Or I can plant my foot in the sand and say if you leave or if you stay, this is the truth. This is the consequences of what you've done. But brothers and sisters, if I would have told them what they wanted to hear, I could have received more. Who knows what could happen if you compromise is what the devil says. Look how much money there is. Look at the reward. Look at the popularity. But you cannot sell out like Balaam. There are those who have turned religion into a big business. They're sellouts. We know that Balaam is mentioned there in Jude, which is our text. But let me share one more place with you that Balaam is mentioned in Revelation 2 and 14. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. What you think about that? Balaam has a doctrine. Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. What is the doctrine of Balaam? The doctrine of Balaam is this. It is the lie that it is permissible that you can be saved and live like unsaved people. That God's grace gives you the right to disobey God's law. That's the doctrine of Balaam. It's Romans 1. It's idolatry then immorality. It's rejecting the truth of God. The doctrine of Balaam is this. That you can live any way you want. And I, I, even though we know that Balaam died centuries ago, his doctrine didn't die because it's alive and a well in the churches of America. Have you ever seen so much idolatry in the church world? Right? I can name minister after minister in the popular culture. They're idols. And they're idol worshipers. I read a lot of stuff sometimes and I get so infuriated i got to delete those things and then I'll download them again later reading about these ministries sometimes. There's even a, a, a social media platform called Preachers and Sneakers. And these mega church pastors take pictures of their shoes. You know, like a, I could, I don't even, I'm not even, I, I, I've never taken a, pair, a picture of my shoes and put it on the internet. John Gray, I don't know much about him. He takes a picture of his shoes, $6,000 for a pair of shoes. Right? Stephen Furtick, I forget how much his shoes cost, and I don't care. Their feet stink just like everybody else's. Come on. It can even go to the other side of the spectrum. You may have nice looking church shoes, but you can be ridiculous about buying them too. I was at a camp meeting one time and they were talking about $300. I'm like, wow, I got these pair for $75. And I don't mind paying $100 for a decent pair of church shoes. I realize good ones can last you longer. But brothers and sisters, we got to be careful. We can pick on preachers and sneakers, but you can become crazy about your church clothes too. Yes, sir. <laughs> 
I walked in Dillard's one time. Don't know much about it. It was in the mall. I don't like going to the mall. There's weird stuff there. I go there. I find myself people watching too much and say, we are in a strange land. I am so much. If you want to feel like a pilgrim, go to the mall. I went to Dillard's. I said, I wonder if they got any suits on sale. One was $750. I said, I sweat too much in these suits to pay $700 for them. I'm not against you having decent clothes and decent shoes. But what I'm trying to get to is this. We've got idols in the church world. We've got idols through ministries and different things. But these idols and idolatry leads to immorality. And we've never seen so much immorality in the church world. This is the stumbling block in our churches. Stumbling blocks. So Balaam understood. Look, I can't curse him. But they can curse themselves. And I would say to you, that's the case here tonight. Let me give you my third point here tonight. And I've got really, I want to drive this point home. The gainsaying of Korah or Korah. Now we know this idea of Korah. And I've got to, re, I've got to visit this tonight. And please give me a little bit of your time. Please focus with me. I want to share some things with you. The word gainsaying literally means to disobey, contradict or against the word. So when it talks about the gainsaying of Korah, it says these are those who are against or contradict the word of God. When you study the life of Korah, you've got to look at his lineage. When it came, let me give you a little history lesson here. In the Old Testament, when it came to the ministry of the tabernacle, you had Aaron who was a priest, and his children were to be the priest. And you had Levi who had a subordinate role who was going to be a minister of servitude there in the tabernacle. Levi had three sons. And we know that one of his sons was Kohath. And all of his sons had a great, a great privilege in the ministry. They got to be hands on with the tabernacle and the transportation of the tabernacle. They were close to the things of God. But one of his sons, and one, and one of his sons was Kohath and he, and he would give birth to the Kohathites and they were responsible for the care of the sanctuary. They were responsible for the care of the ark and the table and the lampstand and the altars and the articles of the sanctuary used in the ministry. And what would happen is, being that they could not touch that furniture lest they die, the priests would come there and they would wrap everything up as they should be. Because if you touch the ark, you're dead. If you touch the holy furnishings, you're dead. So that's what the Kohathites did. But notice this about the Kohathites. Unlike their brethren, they did not get to put the furniture on anything like a cart or the animals. They had to carry the ark and the furnishings. It was a laborious job. It was a job that took a lot of effort. But understand this, it was a blessed job. So basically, what happens with the gainsaying of Korah in number 16 is this. That Kohath, or excuse me, that Korah, basically is looking over there at Aaron and the priesthood and Moses. And Korah along with two others, Dathan and Abiram, who were Reubenites, are looking over there at the priesthood and Moses and said, this ain't right. I don't like my role. I don't like my position. Look at these men. Why do they get to be the leaders? Yeah. 
Why do they get to be in charge? What this is, is that these are men who do not like God's government and do not like God's, God's order of things. They looked at Moses and their, in his unique authority and they get jealous and they think to themselves, there's a better way to do things. I think we ought to change some things around here. So we find this man by the name of Korah, who's a notable leader because he has a lot of influence. Him and Dathan and Abiram and 250 other men. These 250 other men of notable, I guess you would say rank. And notice this, in this unidentified place in time, in this desert wanderings, they come to Moses, and I've learned this about people, I want you to follow me here. When people usually have some sort of unique complaint, there's a stated reason and a hidden reason. They usually tell you something. But when you get digging into it, you realize, oh, that was your intentions. Come on now. The stated reason is this. They stated discontentment centered around the allegation that Moses and Aaron were unjustified in being who they were. But they got a problem. God put them there. God put them there. Right? Look, I realize there's a difference in church government in the New Testament and that which we see in the Old. But still, when I, when I, I stay in the pulpit at times, and sometimes you got to put your foot in the sand, you got to say, look, the problem is this. I know God called me here. And I realize I'm kind to you, I'm your friend. But when it comes down to this, there's not one thing that I'm going to tell I'm going to live by the book. I'm going to do what's right here. Why? Because I'm not going nowhere until everything implodes. Why? Because until God tells me to leave, this is what God has told me to do. But this is the hidden reason. Korah wanted the Levites to have the same privileges as Aaron and his, his sons. See, there's a problem nowadays that people think that a subordinate role is a bad role. Everybody cannot be the chief. God has given us Presbyterian churches and elders and leaders and pastors, deacons, those we read about in the book of Timothy and Titus, those who are set over us, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the selfish desire for greatness and authority is a common theme in Scripture. If it be Korah against Moses and Aaron, if it be Absalom defying his father, if it be Adonijah claiming the crown in First King, if it be the disciples arguing of who's going to be the greatest, or Diotrephes and Third John who love the preeminence. Can I even tell you as a preacher you can love preeminence too much? Right? Moses is a meek man. He's not a rogue man. There's sometimes leadership needs to be reformed. Right? It happens. But there's times that there's true, honest-hearted men that when the situations come, just like Moses does here in number 16 and 4, when these men come to him, they fall down to their faces. They're crying out to God. They know that this is not a good thing. So we realize that what happens if they fall down to their face before the Lord. He didn't debate Korah. He didn't go there and get in a fist fight with Korah and try to get a murder. No, he goes before God. He knew their aim was to seize the priesthood, something the Lord would never permit. So the Lord would show Korah and his followers how wrong they were. Were how Moses puts forth a test. He says, "I want you." And there's 250 men. Go get them some censers. 
Now, if I was one of them 250 men, I think I would think, you know, remember that old Nadab and Abihu there? I'm going to leave the censors to Aaron. Right? It's almost like Mount Carmel all over again. Let's have a showdown. Let's have a showdown. Moses even then chided Korah and the men and said, you, know, you can read this yourself, you have a privileged role. You are close to the presence of God frequently. And you're going to find something to complain about. God has called you out from among the common people, if you would, and brought you close to Himself and gave you a blessed task and you're going to find something to complain about. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, it's of my belief that if I could just be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, it's a blessed task. I see some of you brethren with them vacuum cleaners this week. You consider it a blessed task. Don't let your wife see you. You might do it more at home. But I found, brothers and sisters, if it's weeding and weed eating out in the church parking lot or cleaning the toilets, I find it to be a blessed task. Why? I get to be close to God and the things of God. Years ago, when I was working for the state of North Carolina, I was posted a certain granary. About two miles from Brother Irvin's church, Lighthouse Tabernacle. And I looked up there one day, I drove by, and I said, Boy, I need some weed eating up there. Somebody needs to do it. <laughs> and I forgot I had that still weed eater in the back of my work truck. And if you know anything about a state job around lunchtime, you get a pretty long lunch. <laughs> kind of kick the seat back a little bit. And I get thinking about that grass. And I'll tell you right now, the Holy Ghost hit me. He said, go weed eat that grass. And the thing is, I, I needed some victory that way. I've been going through some things, facing some things, looking for the direction of God in my life. I'll tell you, I wept and weed eated for about an hour. And I thought to myself, as I was looking over there at that church sign with that weed eater in my hand, I said, Lord, just two years ago I was on drugs. Oh, <laughs> But just a few years ago, I didn't have no hope. I'm surprised I got friends that are dead and in the grave because of car wrecks and overdose. But I get to be close to the things of God. Any position as a believer is a blessing. Moses is saying, Kohath, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You get to be close to the things of God. You ought to be content. You ought to be happy. But yet you find complaints. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Lift your hands and say, God, if I just get to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, if I just get to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, it's a joy to work for the kingdom of God. It's a joy. It's a joy, oh Lord. Yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Holy Ghost. One of the marks, one of the marks of these last days is this overwhelming wave of discontentment in the churches. Overlook the joys of your salvation. 
miracle things are not always the way you want it to be or you feel like you get your eyes on other pastures. I'm telling you right now, you can feel the pull of the world sometimes and say, what about this or what about that? But anytime I have a sense of discontentment, one trip to the altar can fix it. Why? Because I look around and I look within. I serve a mighty good God. But listen, as Moses sends out a call to Kor's partners, Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, they said, Moses, we will not come up. We're not going to come there. I've noticed a study in this recently. Listen to the arrogance of Dathan and Abiram. Is it a small thing? They're speaking to Moses. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that floweth with milk and honey? Anybody catch that? These deranged apostates and their stupidity and frustrations are so blind that it said, Moses, you brought us out of Egypt. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. How foolish. Let me show you how deceiving sin is. How deceiving arrogance is. You go looking at the prison you came out of and think it's a paradise. You look back at where you want and you think onions and and cucumbers and garlic is better than the manna in a relationship with God. Moses, you brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey. To kill us in the wilderness. Verse 14, they said, Wilt thou also put out the eyes of these men? So Moses, you're you're trying to deceive us. You think we're going to let you blind everybody to who you are? Moses here has some righteous indignation, which is completely fine. I don't blame them. I said this and I mean it. You know, we can give Moses a tough time for hitting the rock. I probably would have hit it sooner. And you're lucky I ain't hit one of them upside the head with it. He's praying now. He's telling God, God, I challenge them tomorrow to get their censors out. And Aaron's going to stand there with his censor. But God, don't you hear their prayers, Lord? Don't you hear their prayers? Why? Because these are hard-hearted people. And God is going to be the righteous judge. And on the next day, we know what happens. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them. Hear me. Because this is tough, preachers. Separation, separating your righteous indignation. And God says, get out of my way, Moses. Let me destroy them. And harnessing that righteous indignation and laying hold of the heart of God. Standing in the gap. Even if it means you'll be trampled on again and again and again. And said, Lord, don't do it. Don't do it. Moses eventually is going to speak. And I'm just going to read it to you because it's so unique. And Moses said in Numbers 16 and 28, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things. God's going to vindicate me. Let me put it right here. God will vindicate a true minister. Amen. I'll be honest with you. I've been around enough preachers that anytime somebody opposes them, they say, touch not God's prophet. You know, don't do no harm. You ain't got to vindicate yourself every time. Amen. 
Sometimes you sit there in silence. And you hit your face like Moses. You say, God, I'm going to let you handle this one because I can mess it all up. I like no, no, just I'm gonna read it to you. Number 16, 29. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after visitation of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But notice how direct this is in verse 30. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all the appertaining to them, and they go down quick into the pit, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. Very simple. Moses is saying, look, if these men die a normal death, I'm not of God. But you know, if that ground right there opens up and swallows them, then God's called me to this. And it came to pass. As he made an end of speaking, all these words, the ground clave asunder that was under them. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their houses and all the men that appertained to Korah and all their goods. I think I would look at Moses and said, yeah, you're right. I mean, don't you agree? I mean, you know, if they die normal, I'm not of God. Okay. But you know, if that ground over yonder opens up and swallows them, Moses, where are we going next, man? Right? Enough common sense? Not only that. You got them 250 guys over there swinging their little censers probably. You know what the Catholics do? And them goofy headdresses and all them other things and that horrible sound they make. I mean, that moaning, I thought... I'd rather go to purgatory too than live like that. <laughs> Mercy, that's a pitiful sound. Can you imagine them, them old guys over there, 250 guys? I don't know if their mouth was wide open or what. But fire all of a sudden comes down from heaven and consumes their men and the incense. Moses then speaks to Eleazar, the faithful priest there, and says, Look, why don't you go get them censors out there? Ain't nothing wrong with them censors. They're still good censors. This is the way it is. I want you to hammer it out and I want you to make it as a covering for the altar so every time anybody comes this way or you're moving all this stuff or next time that if any of Korah's children yeah. we'll talk about that in a moment and they look at that altar over there and say, you know what? We're just going to take this and be quiet. Why? Because God made an example. Now, I want to get to this point. You think that would be the end of it? Everybody would just look at this. The ground opened up, fire from heaven. Moses, I'm following you. Aaron, you're the priest. God's good. Let's keep on going. Uh, uh, that was a big uh-oh, but we got to keep on living. Verse 41, but on the morrow, on the next day, they begin to murmur and says, Moses, you, you killed the people of the Lord. One of those times as a preacher, you would just feel like, you know, boom, boom. No. Anybody, preacher, you ever been there before? You're like, they're going to get it now. <laughs> right? To be sure they'll understand, you know, the ground, the fire. <laughs> and you're laughing because you know it's true. How hard-hearted are people and hard-headed even the more? They just don't get it and they'll still complain the next day and God has to send a plague among them. But here, 
when the plague is there, again, the natural inclination of most would be, get them, Lord. They're some hard-headed folks. No. Because what we're going to see now is a stark contrast between the legitimate priesthood and the illegitimate. Those with the 250 censers, they're dead. But there's somebody still standing. Moses said to Aaron, take your censer. Put fire therein from off the altar. Put on incense and go quickly into the congregation. Make an atonement for them, for there's wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. And Aaron took, as Moses commanded, and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put the incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stayed. 14,700 died. But I want you to hear the statement right here. I want, to, I want to drive this home in our minds. As I read this, this comes to mind. Aaron stood between the living and the dead, and he represented the authentic priesthood. It must have been clear in the minds of all the people that one censer in the hand of a man of God far excels 250 in the hand of false ministers. Oh, God. Brothers and sisters, God's never had to use the multitudes. He looks for the man. Looks for that woman. Looks for that father. Looks for that church. Looks for those that are saying, God, I know it's heavy. I know it's burdensome. You call me to this, but I God know, Lord, one man with a censor can make a difference. One man with a prayer life can make a difference. One Bible-believing church can make a difference. One standing can make a difference in comparison to all the multitudes of the world. One. One. Why does the one outweigh the rest? Just like Elijah on Mount Carmel. Because that one was called. So this morning, I want you to take fresh heart. And there's so many verses that we could read to drive this point home. More and more and more. But I want you to hear me. Because we live in an age of mass apostasy. I have never seen so much confusion. I've been serving God and preaching for 12 years. Got saved and called a month later. Seems quick. I thought so too. I've had to learn a lot. I've had a lot of crossroads in life. I could have went that way or this way. But I've learned this. that God's calling is real. And God in these last days is not looking for mega churches. And I trust God we could have some sort of revival. I don't know how all that would pan out, but God knows my heart. I stand there at that same church several times a week opening that book. And I say, God, if anybody would hear, God, if you give me the strength to preach this with fervency and context, God, I know it can do something. Why? Because there's something about the censor in the hand of of a man of God. I'm going to come back to that. I want to share one more thought with you. I want to give somebody some hope here today if there's some compromisers in your life or in your family. We know that Korah stood there. The Bible lets us know that the ground opened up and all these people were swallowed up. Even 
Can you imagine the mothers holding their babies as the ground opens up and they go down? In the Old Testament, we see the principle of solidarity in many places. But it looks like that Korah and all of his children are going to be done away with, right? No. The Bible tells us there, in the book of Numbers chapter 26, verses 9-11, through 11, that some of Korah's children did not stand with him. There's some that survived. Brother Derek, how do you know that? Because Brother Woods read a psalm the other night. And we see it titled or listed to the Korahites, the doorkeepers, the custodians for the tabernacle. There's grace even in the age of apostasy. Brothers and sisters, I know as we look there, look at the word of apostasy. Is there any hope? Is there any harvest? I want to tell you, yes, there is potential harvest. We serve a God that cares and loves, that judges, but also shows mercy. Be the sons of Korah that would write, as the heart panteth after the water brooks. <laughs> Ooh, if I had another... Another day to preach on the Psalms of Korah and contrast it to their history. I'm letting you know we serve a mighty good God that is full of grace and mercy.